Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. It's spooky Halloween night, but this will come out a few days later. Spooky. Or, or, just, or just one day late. Yeah, one day late. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this Happy Halloween Eve. <laughs> this, as we are recording, this episode drops in 13 hours. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> guess what? We moved this week. Yes. Yeah. We moved this week. So uh, it's been a wild fucking week, y'all. It's been a fucking week. Uh, like some really good things, some really annoying things, some really frustrating things, some yeah. really f- like amazing things. So, yeah. if you will pardon me, I need to make some noise for a second while I grip it and rip it. Grip it and rip it. <laughs> there we go. All right, all better. Yes, we uh, we packed up the car on Tuesday. We uh, Tuesday, so a week ago, not even six days ago. It's pretty tasty. Um, it's very good. This week's episode brought to you by El Caboo's Mexican Lager from Whistle Hop Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina. Which is a very delightful place. If you're anywhere near Asheville, you should check out Whistle Hop. It's in an old caboose like train car. Yeah. It's amazing. And the, all the beer is amazing. Um, anyway, continuing. But we all need, we need this beer because, you know, we packed up the car six days ago. It's <laughs> just unreal. Yeah. We did the entire drive on Wednesday, so we drove 15 plus hours on Wednesday. Yes. And then I woke up, the, we slept on our air mattress. We got in at like three is when I think when we went to bed. Yeah, yeah. We actually arrived here at I think 1.30 and we're finally asleep around three yeah. o'clock. Yeah. And so then I had to wake up and Ken took me to Penn Station in Philadelphia. and uh, I 30th Street Station. 30th Street Station. Penn, Penn Station is the New York one. It's a different place. See, <laughs> I don't know where I am anymore. Um, the Amtrak station. <laughs> and I took a train and uh, spent three days, uh, well, four days and three nights doing a an amazing staged reading of uh, Sarah Bierstock's play. Used to be called Mothers and Daughters, then it was Mad. Now the working title is The Glue People. Um, and I've been working on this character for her for over three years now, more than that. Um, so is it, as the title would suggest, a play about... Um, glue people who have come out of the TV screen during an episode of the Twilight Zone. No, not at all. Oh. Well, that's not very Halloween-y. So there, there is a ghost in the play, though. Hmm. There is all a right. there is a ghost figure in the play. So, um, But that was really fun. We were at Contemporary American Theater Festival, so shout out to them for bringing new plays to light and bringing in, awesome equity actors. Uh, in in Shepard. Birdstown? Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Though we were staying in Charlestown, West Virginia, which is just Shep- on the road. Shepherdstown, Shepherdsville. Shepherdsville, 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 Shepherd- West and Charlestown. Yes, but so I did that. Well, Ken was here, and he got to hang out with some friends, and you know, warm, and our cat warm the space with Lina, and then I came back, and our stuff was supposed to be here, and it's still not. 
And uh, anyone who has dealt with movers before, um, please send us your emails to tell us your nightmare stories because we're currently living in one. Yeah. Or if you have them, we'd happily share your happy stories too. Yes. If you have but a moving company you that have, you just love, yeah, please, if, if you we have should a, have used them. If you have a significant moving story that went either really well or really poorly, let us know because right now we're dealing with a company that um, is uh, a week late and over budget um basically and non-communicative and it's it's been kind of a nightmare but that's not what we're here for we're not here to oppress your already difficult day with our problems because and then we're having a beer and we're gonna bring some light to your life and you know how we bring light to people's lives recently by setting things on fire well we already have a candle on fire (laughs) that we just bought at ikea so we spent the day at ikea having delicious ikea food and god those meatballs are so good oh they're so good And we bought some because you can buy them frozen there. Yeah, super game changer. Yep. You can get Ikea's Swedish meatballs in the comfort of your own home. And then they sell the gravy in like packets so you can make it at home and you can get the lindenberry jelly. Jam stuff. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It's amazing. (laughs) So we're pretty thrilled about that. But uh, we also got a candle there that smells like a campfire. And I'm so excited. We have it burning right now. Because campfire classics, yep. and I was I was ex- very excited about that. So may this classic campfire bring light and warmth into your life. Yes, as we enter the holiday season. Yes, we're in the holiday season. We Halloween's are. a holiday. Halloween. Well, holiday. I I call Halloween the beginning of the holiday season because. Halloween rolls right into Thanksgiving, which rolls right into Christmas, which rolls right into New Year's. Fair so enough. I've always thought of my birthday as the beginning of the holiday season. <laughs> that is true. Well, then I guess we can because, say my birthday is the beginning of the holiday season. Because it's my birthday and then my brother's birthday and then my mom's birthday and then Halloween and then. Yes. So the Sandberg family is yeah. part of the holiday season. <laughs> But yes, so we are now officially in what I would call the holiday season. Um so uh, I hope this warms your soul. And the way we warm people's soul the most here at Campfire Classics these days is Clown Corner. Yeah. So Ken started Clown Corner when I had no say whatsoever because I was on the boat. And that is his prerogative. Yeah, that's what I do. So what I've done is I'm like, well, fuck it. Say yes. You know, like an improv. You just say yes and go with it. So what I've decided to do this week is... Mary Clown Corner with Haunted Objects. So I'm talking about the world famous Clown Motel in (laughs) Tonopa, Nevada. Okay, you do know that for Clown Corner, you're not allowed to just make shit up. I'm not making this shit up. (laughs) I am reading directly on. So I literally Googled Haunted Clown. Because I was Jesus. what I was hoping to find was a haunted clown doll. Sure. Because that would marry Clown Corner and, and Heather's haunted objects. Haunted eBay, yeah. So what I found was two thousand haunted clowns. What? That are living in this clown motel. Oh God, so, this was a mistake. <laughs> look what you did. This See? was a mistake. Look what you did, and it and it's Halloween, so I feel like this is great. So. I'm so sorry, listener. I didn't know that this is what was going to happen. <laughs> so I am. I told you you should have stopped me. They can still email us and tell us to stop Clown Corner, but um, here we go. So, Tonopa, Nevada hosts the Clown Motel. The Clown Motel 
has become a landmark. It is considered America's scariest motel due to the clown theme and the proximity the proximity to the old Tonopa Cemetery. Not for nothing, but I have stayed in some pretty sketchy-ass yes. motels, like the kind that make you feel like you're walking into the last scene of a Quentin Tarantino movie. So if this is worse... Oh, no. It's worse. So um, many people are terrified of this place. So it's an old mining community. So the cemetery is full of people that died in mining accidents. Great. Um, And the famous Tonopa Plague of 1911. Sure. Yeah, naturally. The, the, the website claims that, don't worry, there are also happy clowns, especially in the lobby, um, but people from all over the world have started sending, since they found out about this motel, have started sending clown dolls and clown portraits and clown things to this motel that now has over 2,050 clown objects. This really, really just seems unnecessary. Um, so, <laughs> so I found uh, this lovely uh, woman named Amy. She has a website called Amy's Crypt, and she basically... Uh, talks about and or goes to haunted places and then writes about them and cool. tells you like cool, what's cool, up. Cool, yeah. So I'm getting a lot of my information from her and from the Clown Motel website. So I have some pictures that I'm going to show Ken and we will put these up for the uh, the episode. So here's the first one. This is a night image on Amy's crypt. What? Why would you even that like <laughs> This is the collection of all the clown dolls and clown objects. Oh, now that is creepy. <laughs> the exterior shot, that was fine. The exterior shot just kind of looked like fucked up McDonald's, but this is... No, and they're like like old clowns, yeah. Um, the scary thing about... So clowns don't bother me. The scary thing about that is it's dolls. Like that many well, yeah. dolls is just unsettling it's to look outside. at. What? Why? It's only thirty nine fifty to stay there, y'all. So I'm going to tell you a little bit. I'm going to get one more picture and then I, and we'll put all these up, I promise. So, and this is the, so then you can see here, you can see the Tonopa Cemetery, which the Clown Motel is literally next to. It like shares a parking lot. It shares a parking lot. That's. And I'm going to tell you why. So between Amy's Crypt and then the Clown Motel website, I have this information. So it was built in a once thriving mining community. And it was built by two siblings for their father. So a little bit about Tonopa. Jim Butler stumbled upon this silver rich like place in Tonopa and, you know, they started mining. And, you know, with mining comes accidents. Dead people, yeah. During the time of Tonopa and its heyday, there was a famous cemetery opened and it for 10 years buried many, many, over 300 people that basically died tragically. So again, I said... There was a, oh, I'm sorry. The plague was in 1905. Okay. The Belmont mine fire was in 1911. So, yeah, not great. Um, A lot of famous people. uh, There was uh, a a couple murders in the area. There was, you know, it's just not silver mining. Not a lot going on. I mean, they're in the middle of the desert. Yeah, it's the Wild West. Yeah, it was the Wild West. So, like, think think, uh, Back to the Future 3, but, like, with clowns. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> so over in my the, head, they're all dressed in the outfit that Marty goes back to the Wild yes, West right, in, that like right. pink and yellow cowboy outfit. 
got like pink fringe on his. I'm sure there's a clown there in a pink fringe jacket. I'm sure. Over the years, there were many fires and Clarence David died in the Belmont fire of 1942. So he was buried in the Tonopah Cemetery and he just so happens to have in his possession and at his death, a clown collection of like clown dolls. Like he collected like clown dolls, clown figurines, clown pottery, clown stuff. I wonder if that was a collection that was on purpose or if it was one of those collections that like he had a clown doll and And one of his neighbors was like, oh, you like clowns. Here, let me give you one. And then all of a sudden he had 90 of them. Yeah, because I actually actually want to do research on this because like this is fascinating to me. I knew nothing about this and I love paranormal podcasts. So um, so his children, uh, Leona and Leroy, opened the clown motel next to the cemetery where their father was buried. So this is why it's right next to the cemetery. And they displayed all 150 or so of their father's clown collection. And they named it the Clown Motel as like, you know, an ode to their father. And that was in 1985 that they opened this. Okay. Okay. So he's been dead for like 40 years. So like they're like, they've, you know, they've decided that to honor his death 40 years ago, which he was quite young. I think his children were quite young when, um. Yeah, this was probably one of the first things they did when they had a decent amount of money and could... Yes. So over the years, people have gone to visit this. And of course, being that close to some 300 graves that date back to early 1900s and tragic events, um, there's a lot of weird shit that happens at the hotel. Now, a lot of people think that the, the haunting is in the cemetery, but ghosts kind of, the spirits kind of... Because it is literally on top of each other. Sure, they they come across the parking lot because the cemetery is crowded. But also, another scary place in the Clown Motel is the gift shop. Uh, some claim the spirits are drawn to this place due to the impressive clown collection it holds. This small building is home to over 2,000 clown statues, toys, puppets, pieces of art, and some actually notable haunted clown dolls. There are 31 rooms. If you want to stay, you can go to the official motel's website. Uh, it is said if you want a haunting experience that room 108 or the it room is the most haunted of them all. <laughs> so allegedly there is an... What do you In look- Lost, every 108 minutes, they had to enter <gasps> those numbers that added up to 108 oh, and shit. push the button. It's a haunted number. So it's like a fuck. It's a demonic number, basically. Well, look at that. Yeah. So all you lost fans. It was every 108 minutes. That's right. And then the 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42 adds up to 108. So a lot of guests have had some strange experiences. I'll let you do your own research because this is not a paranormal podcast. It's turning into (laughs) one right now. Um, You can book online if anyone wants to pass through. Um, They have a place on their website for you to upload any paranormal stories or pictures or activity that happens to you while you're in the hotel. Ghost hunters and ghost adventurers, including Zach Bagel, Bagel Face Baggins, yeah. or whatever his name is, have done episodes there and have caught... Zach, Zach Bo Baggins. Zach, Zach Bo Baggins uh, have done episodes there and have caught things on the spirit box and some weird images, um, sure. ghosts giving blowjobs, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> clowns con- giving blowjobs. Yeah. That wasn't a haunting thing. There was just a clown giving That's, a blowjob. Just, was- I mean, it is Vegas, so prostitution is legal, so... 
sex workers, go get it. I mean, honestly, if I was a sex worker, I would dress up as a clown and go outside that motel. Like, go, go get it. Go get it. Not for nothing, I wouldn't. Not because I feel like I'm above that, but because I feel like the people who would be into that are the kind of clientele where, like, you might not survive the encounter. <laughs> True. Um, okay, so I'm done with that because right. this is not what we do on this, this is podcast. This not what we do. But I'm, I'm, as everyone knows that listens to this, I love me. I love me some paranormal shit. So I got really excited about this one. So, <laughs> so I highly encourage that you check out the clown motel and also check out amyscrypt.com because they've got a ton of stuff on there that is, you can literally search a place and it'll tell you if there's a haunted thing around there. It has haunted stuff near you, haunted places around the world. So uh, I'm basically bookmarking this page, and I'm really excited about it. So. All right. Next time we're driving through Nevada, that's where we're stopping. Yeah, it, damn right we are. <laughs> Next time you're any of us are out at Tuacon, when we drive back to Vegas, we are stopping at the Clown fucking Motel. <laughs> anyway. That was Clown Corner. Contrary to popular belief, however, this podcast is not a clown podcast. <laughs> uh, although I, my offer still stands if anybody wants it to turn to to create a separate podcast that is a JP Patches fan cast. I mean, I will absolutely do a rewatch podcast. I just need someone to tell me they've listened to it. Um. <laughs> I mean, I would rewatch it. I would also, I mean. Honestly, I kind of like the idea now that I've found so much weird clown shit just searching for that. I'm like, that is a whole podcast right there. Yeah. So trademark, trademark, if you're like, ooh, I, oh, a clown. No, it's ours. Um, but what we typically do here at Campfire Classics is uh, we read short stories that we drag out of the public domain. We cold read them for you to listen to so you get to hear us fuck up everything along the way, the way we normally do. <laughs> And while we're reading, we will look up words we don't understand and laugh at antiquated penis jokes that may or may not have been penis jokes intentionally when they were first written. Yes. This week, I get to read the story, and Heather has picked it out for me. And before we get to the reading, she's going to read a few fun facts to sort of set the tone and tell us some stuff about maybe the author? I don't know what the fun facts are going to be about because Heather did the research. You'll find out, and it's not about clown motels, so... So I I did a little research on uh, Podbean, which is our our host for our podcast, Mm -hmm. um, that you can listen wherever. And our most popular episode was a story by this week's author, which is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So I was like, it clearly people like something about that story and I'm going to go with it's the author. And this is not a Sherlock Holmes story. Once again, his his short stories tend to be. The, the non-Sherlock Holmes ones mm-hmm. that we've read have been have really been good. amazing. Yeah. And they tend to be kind of haunted, yeah. which is appropriate for Halloween. Exactly. So what I did um, is this week, so we've done a lot of stuff on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah. You should go back and um, we'll we'll put in show notes of, in the show notes, where you can go listen to more fun facts about him. But what we did learn is that he is into spirituality and uh, like... Very heavily believes in ghosts, fairies, all these things. Oh, yeah. But what we have not discovered is that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was kind of a detective himself. So he came to the defense of two wrongfully accused men and got them acquitted. Oh, cool. 
1903, a solicitor named, and this I got this all on www.mentalfloss.com. So if you want to check it right. out. In 1903, a solicitor named George Edigai was found guilty of mutilating a horse and writing a series of menacing anonymous letters in a rural parish. I'm like, that's fucked up. That's weird. The evidence against him was unconvincing. The letters had been sent to his own family, for one thing, and three years later, he was released from prison, but without a pardon. Edigai wrote to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, hoping to, the creator of Sherlock Holmes would help to clear his name. Sure. Conan Doyle visited the scene of the crimes, met with Edigia, and was certain of his innocence. This is the real life case that um, that TV show Castle was based on. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> So he noted, among other things, that Edigia was so nearsighted that it would have been impossible for him to sneak across the countryside attacking livestock in the dead of the night. Fair. He also recognized that racial prejudice was likely played. Edigia, whose father was a Parsi of Parsi origin, must assuredly have seemed a very odd man to the eyes of an English village. Huh. So he went forward and he sent a barrage of letters to the chief constable in charge of the case, um, presenting new evidence and theories of other suspects. Edigia was ultimately pardoned, but unfortunately was not given financial compensation for the miscarriage of his judgment. But he was pardoned. Great. So that's so yay for him. So the second one was for uh, the case of Oscar Slater, a German-Jewish bookmaker who was convicted of murdering a wealthy woman in Glasgow, Scotland. So though Slater had an alibi, police honed in on him as the culprit, and it would later emerge that key evidence was withheld during the trial. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a vocal participant in the campaign of advocating for Slater's release from prison. So once again, he's advocating for someone who has a, already been found guilty. Well, had already been found guilty, but was also of a descent that tended to be persecuted. Sure, yeah. So we have a... Um, there was a mixed-race guy, and now there's Yeah, we have a, a Parsi Jewish man, man, and then we have a Jewish man. In 1912, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle published The Case of Oscar Slater, which was a plea for a full pardon of Slater. In 1914, Thomas McKinnon Wood ordered a private inquiry into the case. A detective in the case, John Thompson Trench, provided information which had allegedly been deliberately concealed from the trial at the, by the police. Okay. The inquiry found that the conviction was sound, and instead, Trench, who admitted there was stuff concealed, was dismissed from the force and prosecuted on charges which he, evide- which he was eventually acquitted. But basically, because he, he, he was a whistleblower on the police. Uh, like Yeah. And so they fired him. This is yeah, 19... Yeah, still don't like it when you do that. Yeah. So that was... This all started in 1912. 1927... Jesus. ...saw the publication of The Truth About Oscar Slater by another author, William Park. The contents of the book led the Solicitor General for Scotland to conclude that it was no longer proven that Slater was guilty. So what happened was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle put forward the money for him to file an official appeal and to hire lawyers. So his case of Oscar Slater was 1912. This other author has now 1927. 15 years later, yeah. It highlighted grave flaws in the investigation and the prosecution, just like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's. 
So this was sent to the jurisdiction of the, the Scottish Court of Criminal Appeal. An act in Scotland was passed to extend the jurisdiction of an appeal. Okay. So he had to wait for that. So then it was July 1928 when it finally got pushed forward and he was proven innocent. Oh, so when when all of the information came out, it was too late. It was to too appeal. late to appeal, and so they had to wait for a new law yes. to get pushed through yes. that would then allow him to appeal. Yes, and that's though- why uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and these and basically was paying his legal fees and pushing through this law. So after serving almost two decades long in prison of hard labor, labor and you know loss yeah. of life and whatever, Slater received only six thousand pounds, which now is about. $350,000 in compensation. So not an inconsiderable sum, but not but worth not 20 years 20, of your life. Literally, he was in prison for 18 years Yeah, for murder. And it came out, there's all this other stuff about is because he was Jewish and well, all, yeah. like, I mean, yeah, it's very, uh, the, the story of parade. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, anti-Semitism is not, no. is not a new thing. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, and it's not, and it's very prominent in our world right now. Unfortunately, yeah, well, and there was a fucking idiot that walked into the village in a Nazi costume two days ago and got, yeah. Oh, like, well, he got booted from the, he got bar. booted rightfully <laughs> so. So good for that place. But I mean, fuck people, but yeah. yeah. So so good for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle yeah. for like stepping forward and being a real life Sherlock Holmes for Hell people. Yeah. Way to go, dude. Um, and doing the right thing. So this week, because we just talked about two cases he helped, this is the case of Lady Saxon or mm, Sanox, Sanox, S-A-N-N-O-X. Sanox. 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 Sure. Sanox. The, the case of Lady Sanox, which is a short story written by Mr. Doyle, okay. first published in the American newspapers on October 29th. So it's actually like yeah. it was published in 1893. Great. Uh, in the Idler. So this also has the title of, it has been published under another title called The Kiss of Blood. Ooh. So, let's start this fire. The Case of Lady Sanix, or The Kiss of Blood, Mm -hmm. by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sexy. Why is the kiss bloody? We're going to find out. (laughs) Is it just that time? Ew. No. Or maybe it is. Maybe it, this is a, a story about cunnilingus <laughs> at, at the wrong time of the month. Arthur Conan Doyle was way ahead of his time. He was writing murder mysteries about period sex. I mean, good for him. I mean, he seemed ahead <laughs> of his time in a lot of ways, yeah, so good for cool him. cool dude. I'm hoping it's a vampire. <laughs> oh, well, we're not off to a great start. Oh, good. The relations between Douglas Stone and the notorious Lady Sanex were very well known both among the fashionable circles of which she was a brilliant member and the scientific bodies which numbered him among their most illustrious confreres. Okay, so they're having relations. Yep. (laughs) All right. So you might be right. There was naturally, therefore, a very wise... And it's it's the, the fashionable hot lady with the science nerd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fashionable. Oh, what an what a age-old story. Yeah. 
Angel, I mean, it's it's just it's just Big Bang Theory. Oh, or uh, <laughs> or like she's she's out of my league or whatever that movie yeah. is. Like yeah. There was naturally or every sitcom ever. Uh, yeah, realistically. <laughs> Where the wife is hot and the guy's kind of a dope. <laughs> Although, well, no, at least this time he's a science nerd. At least he's smart and not he's just not a dope. Just like Tim Allen. <laughs> I was gonna go with Ray Romano, but same difference, yeah. Or um, what's his name? Paul Paul Bart Bald Cop. Oh, I love him too. Kevin James. Kevin James. Yeah. Whatever you can or do. Ed O'Neill. Can or, do a yeah, lot worse I, than yeah. Kevin James. Yeah, Kevin James adorable. There was naturally, therefore, a very widespread interest when it was announced one morning that the lady had absolutely and for ever taken the veil and that the world would see her no more. Oh shit, that's not good. When at the very tail of this rumor there came the assurance that the celebrated operating surgeon, the man of steel nerves, had been found in the morning by his valet seated on one side of his bed smiling pleasantly upon the universe with both legs jammed into one side of his breeches and his great brain about as valuable as a cap full of porridge, the matter was strong enough to give quite a little thrill of interest to folk who had never hoped that their jaded nerves were capable of such a sensation. Oh my god, so this woman has, like, retired from society, like, completely, like, she'll never be seen again, and the science guy is now, like, basically been lobotomized? Her, her genius boy toy surgeon is now like about as... Um, well, he's about vegetable. as clever as a cap full of porridge. Yeah, it's like he's been lobotomized yeah. or something. Okay, what happened? Douglas Stone, in his prime, was one of the most remarkable men in England. Indeed, he could hardly be said to have ever reached his prime, for he was but nine and thirty at the time of this little incident. So he's a year younger than me and a year older than you. Yeah. Those who knew him best were aware that, famous as he was as a surgeon, he might have succeeded with even greater rapidity in any of a dozen lines of life. He could have cut his way to fame as a soldier, struggled to it as an explorer, bullied for it in the courts, or built it out of stone and iron as an engineer. He was born to be great, for he could plan what another man dare not do, and he could do what another man dare not plan. In surgery, none could follow him. His nerve, his judgment, his intuition were things apart. Again and again, his knife cut away death, but grazed the very springs of life in doing it until his assistants were as white as the patient. His energy, his audacity, his full-blooded self-confidence. Does not the memory of them still linger to the south of Marylebone Road and to the north of Oxford Street? His vices were as magnificent as his virtues. So we're having a lot. So I know we brought up Lost earlier with 108, but uh, I'm thinking of the doctor. Shepard. Shepard. Yeah. Dr. Shepard. Known for his oh, yeah. all of that stuff, and he could have he could have gone into so many things. Yep. And then when he gets to the island, he's like the leader. I mean, he seems like you know he could be anything. And then one day, it's just like, what happened? Yeah. Well, we know what happened. We know to him, what happened. But you you watch Lost, but yeah. 
His vices were as magnificent as his virtues, and infinitely more picturesque. <laughs> Large as was his income, it was the third largest of all professional men in London. So was his penis. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished the sentence for you. It's okay. <laughs> Large as was his income. income. The third largest in all of London. <laughs> Which is pretty good. London's I mean, a big that, city. Damn. And also, why do they know this? Why, why do they have measurements of all the people in London's penises? Well, <laughs> the narrator is the omnipotent narrator. I, he, just knows. he just knows. It's God. It's, the narrator is God. <laughs> is, is, is the all-knowing, all all-being. Okay. Thank cool. you. Uh, I'm the one narrating at the moment. That is true. That is true. <laughs> I don't know well, what I know Sir, yet. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did believe in the spirits, so he, you know, yeah. the narrator is someone in the spirits, as for all we know. Large as was his income, income and it was the third largest of all professional men in London, it was far beneath the luxury of his living. Deep in his complex nature lay a rich vein of sensualism, oh. at the sport of which he placed all the prizes of his life. The eye, the ear, the touch, the palate, all were his masters. Oh, he's a naughty boy. <laughs> he likes the food, he likes the, the, the art, he likes the lust. He, he likes, likes the tongue stuff. He like, Yeah, well, see, we're still going down that road. The bouquet of old vintages, the scent of rare exotics, the curves and tints of the daintiest potteries of Europe. It was to these that the quick-running stream of gold was transformed. And then there came his sudden mad passion for Lady Sanox. Uh, <laughs> it's always a woman. I'm pretty sure there's a song titled That Exactly. It's always a woman, <laughs> or there's, and then came Lady Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Xanax. Lady Xanax. <laughs> Ooh, Lady Xanax is a good is a good lady and she's leaving you out real good. She feels makes you feel real nice. <laughs> she will calm you down. When a single interview with two challenging glances and a whispered word set him ablaze. Uh oh. She was the loveliest woman in London, and the only one to him. He was one of the handsomest men in London, but not the only one to her. Oh, she's a lady, she gets around town. She she's had a, a liking lady. for new experiences, okay. and was gracious to most men who wooed her. So she was a woman who uh, took what she wanted yep. <laughs> and got it, which was not super acceptable at the time. No. And I would argue that some people still don't think it is, but I'm like, get it, girl, do your thing. Do it, get it done. <laughs> get, get it done. <laughs> it may have been cause or it may have been a fact that Lord Sanix looked 50, though he was but six and 30. Oh. <laughs> so she's married. Yes. <laughs> to a guy who looks older than he is. Yeah, so he's 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 lived hard. Yep. 
He was a quiet, silent, neutral-tinted man, this lord, with thin lips and heavy eyelids, much given to gardening and full of home-like habits. He had at one time been fond of acting, had even rented a theater in London, and on its boards had first seen Miss Marion Dawson, to whom he had offered his hand, his title, and the third of a country. Since his marriage, this early hobby had become distasteful to him. <laughs> even in private theatricals, it was no longer possible to persuade him to exercise the talent which he had often shown that he possessed. He was happier with a spud and a watering can among his orchids and chrysanthemums. He's like, I would rather garden than talk to people. Thanks. I'm good with my potatoes and my flowers. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to do my thing. It was quite an interesting problem whether he was absolutely devoid of sense or miserably wanting in spirit. Did he know his lady's ways and condone them? Or was he a mere blind, doting fool? It was a Good point question. I had not put that... Yeah. <laughs> Is he like, Honey, my only true love are my potatoes. Go do your thing. Or is he just so occupied with his potatoes that she has taken upon herself to go do her thing? Yeah, it's also possible she's his beard. Oh, yes. Oh, that's true. Maybe maybe he's um, uh, he in was, the closet. He was obsessed with the theater. He was obsessed with the theater. <laughs> and you know how those actors are. You know all them actors, Ken. <laughs> <clears throat> it was a point to be discussed over the teacups in snug little drawing rooms or with the aid of a cigar in the bow windows of clubs. Bitter and plain were the comments among men upon his conduct. There was but one who had a good word to say for him, and he was the most silent member in the smoking room. He had seen him break in a horse at the university, and it seemed to have left an impression upon his mind. But when Douglas Stone became the favorite, all doubts as to Lord Sanix's knowledge or ignorance were set forever at rest. There was no subterfuge about Stone. In his high-handed, impetuous fashion, he set all caution and discretion at defiance. Oh, Lady Sanex, like, dude, I said this is our little secret. Could you be cool for, like, three seconds? But we already know that he likes to show off his all his fancy things, and now she's one of the fancy things. And yeah. And she didn't want to be shown off. She just wanted a little uh, period sex, and he got he got uh, careless. <laughs> the scandal became notorious. Uh-oh. Not in London society. I've seen Downton Abbey. <laughs> a learned body intimated that his name had been struck from the list of its vice presidents. Two friends implored him to consider his professional credit. He cursed them all three and spent 40 guineas on a bangle to take with him to the lady. He was Wow. So now he's spending all his money on her, too. Yeah. 
And everyone's like, dude, calm the fuck down. <laughs> like, you already got her. Everyone knows you need to, like, do some damage control here. In the immortal words of Patrick Verona, <laughs> what's with this chick? She have beer-flavored nipples? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I love a 10 Things I Hate About You <laughs> reference. Yes. Rest in peace, Heath Ledger. He was at her house every evening, and she drove in his carriage in the afternoons. There was not an attempt on either side to conceal their relations, but there was, at last, a little incident to interrupt them. Uh-oh. It was a dismal winter's night. Very cold and gusty, with the wind whooping in the chimneys and blustering against the window panes. Whoop, 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 a thin whoop, whoop. spatter of rain <laughs> tinkled on the glass with each fresh sow of the gale, drowning for the instant the dull gurgle and drip from the eaves. Douglas Stone had finished his dinner and sat by his fire in the study, a glass of rich port upon the malachite table at his elbow. Mm, port. Mm, malachite. <laughs> What's malachite mean? Malachite. Uh, it's a type of stone. Yeah. Okay, good. So it's a stone table. Stone table. Douglas Stone had finished his dinner. <laughs> and it's a stone, and it's a stone table. Hey. Had finished his dinner and sat by his fire in the study, a glass of rich port upon the malachite table at his elbow. As he raised it to his lips, he held it up against the lamplight and watched with the eye of a connoisseur the tiny scales of bee's wing, which floated in its rich ruby depths. The fire, as it spurted up, threw fitful lights upon his bold, clear-cut face, with its widely opened gray eyes, its thick and yet firm lips, and the deep, square jaw which had something Roman in its strength and its animalism. Ooh, well, damn. Hello, Thor. <laughs> he smiled from time to time as he nestled back in his luxurious chair, Indeed, he had a right to feel well-pleased, for against the advice of six colleagues, he had performed an operation that day of which only two cases were on record, and the result had been brilliant beyond all expectation. No other man in London would have had the daring to plan or the skill to execute such a heroic measure. I'm glad he's humble. Yeah. Yeah. He seems like a real, like, down-to-earth Chill, down-to-earth kind of dude, He's, yeah. Yeah. You, like, you would never know that there was something special about it. <laughs> but he had promised Lady Sanix to see her that evening, and it was already half-past eight. His hand was outstretched to the bell to order the carriage when he heard the dull thud of the knocker. <laughs> Knockers. The dull thud of the knockers coming up the stairs. Well, shit. Dunk, 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 dunk. dunk. <laughs> Beer-flavored nipples. Here they come. <laughs> <laughs> An instant later, there was the shuffling of feet in the hall and the sharp closing of a door. A patient to see you, sir, in the consulting room, said the butler. About himself... 
No, sir. I think he wants you to go out. It is too late, cried Douglas Stone peevishly. I won't go. <laughs> this is his card, sir. Uh-oh. The butler presented it upon a gold salver which had been given to his master by the wife of a prime minister. Hamil Ali Smyrna. Hmm. The fellow's a Turk, I suppose. Yes, sir. He seems as if he came from abroad, sir. And he's in a terrible way. Tut, tut. I have an engagement. I must go somewhere else, but I'll see him. Uh, show him in here, Pim. Pim, Pim, Pim. A few moments later, the butler swung open the door and ushered in a small, decrepit man who walked with a bent back and with the forward push of the face and blink of the eyes which goes with extreme short sight. His face was swarthy and his hair and beard of the deepest black. In one hand, he held a turban of white muslin striped with red, in the other, a small chamois leather bag. Good evening, said Douglas Stone when the butler had closed the door. You speak English, I presume. Rude. Yes, sir, I am from Asia Minor, but I speak English when I speak slow. You wanted me to go out, I understand? Yes, sir, I wanted very much that you should see my wife. I could come in the morning, but I have an engagement which prevents me from seeing your wife tonight. I need to get my dick on, is what he means. Gotta get so, the D wet. So screw your wife, I'm gonna go screw someone else's. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah. Rude, not a great your wife. doctor. Uh, is she hot? Yeah. Because <laughs> I ain't got no qualms about that. <laughs> The Turk's answer was a singular one. He pulled the string which closed the mouth of the chamois leather bag and poured a flood of gold onto the table. Oh, well, well there, if you want to talk, then... There are 100 pounds there, said he, and I promise you that it will take not an hour of your time. I have a cab ready at the door. Douglas Stone glanced at his watch. An hour would not make it too late to visit Lady Sanix. He had been there later, and the fee was an extraordinarily high one. He had been pressed by his creditors lately, and he could not afford to let such a chance pass. He would go. What is the case? he asked. Oh, it is so sad a one, so sad a one. You have not, perhaps, heard of the daggers of the Almohades? Never. Ah, they are eastern daggers of a great age and of a singular shape, with the hilt like what you call a stirrup. I am a curiosity dealer, you understand, and that is why I have come to England from Smyrna, but next week I go back once more. Many things I brought with me, and I have a few things left, but among them, to my sorrow, is one of these daggers. 
You will remember that I have an appointment, sir, said <laughs> the surgeon with some irritation. Pray confine yourself to the necessary details. Good lord. You're like, you asked. You <laughs> asked me, dude. <laughs> you will see that it is necessary. Today, my wife fell down in a faint in the room in which I keep my wares, and she cut her lower lip upon this cursed dagger of El Mahades. I see, said Douglas Stone, rising, and you wish me to dress the wound. No, no, it is worse than that. What then? These daggers are poisoned. Poisoned? Yes. Oh, it's like the tip of the sword at the end of Hamlet, man. Oh, fuck. That's not good. <laughs> oh, no. We know how this play ends. It's not good. I'm putting together thoughts. Yeah. Because we know we know well, how this like, ends. Well, and that's, yes, we know how it ends. And does he get, does he make out with the wife? <laughs> Yo. <laughs> Dirty dog. Dirty dog, dirty dog. <laughs> yes, there is no man east or west who can tell now what is the poison or what the cure. But all that is known I know, for my father was in this trade before me, and we have had much to do with these poisoned weapons. Um, also, I feel like you should keep that kind of weapon locked away so your mo your wife can't, like, fall on it. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a play something you would, you know, put in a safe location yeah. wrapped up in, like, some cloth so you can't d directly fall on the, the poison knife. <laughs> it's also, like... It's how I feel about guns when people are like, you should probably lock those up because, you know, they're dangerous. Yeah. Also, how did she fall that she landed, like... Mouth first on this. Deep-throating this poison dagger <laughs> is what I want to know. Maybe she was practicing. Just She's like, this she, looks like a good thing to practice with. She just really wanted to keep her husband happy. Or she's a sword swallower, one of the two. Or both. But it could be both. Could be both. I'm guessing if you're the a sword skills swallower, are transferable. Yes, I was gonna say, if you're a sword swallower, you're probably pretty good at other things too. <laughs> what are the symptoms? Deep sleep and death in 30 hours. Oh uh, shit. And you say there is no cure. Why then should you pay me this considerable fee? No drug can cure, but the knife may. And how? The poison is slow of absorption. It remains for hours in the wound. Oh, shit. He wants her to cut her mouth off or something? Washing, then, might cleanse it. No more than a snake bite. It is too subtle and too deadly. Excision of the wound, then? That is it. If it be on the finger, take the finger off, so said my father always, but think of where this wound is, and that it is my wife. It is dreadful. Oh my god, yeah. 
But the familiarity with such grim matters may take the finer edge from a man's sympathy. To Doug Stone, this was already an interesting case, and he brushed aside as irrelevant the feeble objections of the husband. Yeah, you don't matter. (laughs) It appears to be that or nothing, he said brusquely. It is better to lose the lip than a life. Ah, yes, I know that you are right. Well, you can well. just kiss her upper lip. It's fine. It'll, yeah, yeah, fine. it'll work. She'll just look, look like a half skeleton. It's cool. <laughs> there are wonderful prosthetics out there. There are. There are. Uh, yeah, uh, where is this going? I am very intrigued to how. Yeah. Because it's called, the other title of this story is called The Kiss of Blood. Yep. So, continue. <laughs> ah. Yes, I know that you are right. Well, well, it is kismet and must be faced. I have the cab, and you will come with me and do this thing. Douglas Stone took his case of bisturies. Bisturies? Bisturies, a surgical knife with a long, narrow, straight, or curved blade. Douglas Stone took his case of bisturies from the drawer and placed it with a roll of bandage and a compress of lint in his pocket. He must waste no more time if he were to see Lady Sanix. I am ready, he said, pulling on his overcoat. Will you take a glass of wa- Oh, you know where this is going? I got it. You know where this is going? I got it. Okay. You know where this is going? Yeah, pretty sure. Okay. Do you want me to tell you, or should I keep going? No, keep going. I am ready, he said, pulling on his overcoat. Will you take a glass of wine before you go out into this cold air? His visitor shrank away with a protesting hand appraised. You forget that I am a Muslim, a true follower of the prophet, he said. But... Tell me what is the bottle of green glass which you have placed in your pocket. It is chloroform. Ah, that also is forbidden to us. It is a spirit, and we make no use of such things. What? Uh, That's how she's going to, like... You would allow your wife to go through an operation without an anesthetic? Ah, she will feel nothing, poor soul... The deep sleep has already come on, which is the first working of the poison, and then I have given her of our Smyrna opium. Come, sir. Milk of the poppy. (laughs) For already an hour has passed. As they stepped out into the darkness, a sheet of rain was driven in upon their faces, and the hall lamp, which dangled from the arm of a marble carriage... Did you just have a stroke saying carriage, or is it a weird word? Nope, it is definitely not carriage. <laughs> okay, let me look it up. <laughs> Spell it. Although I appreciate knowing that if I were to have a stroke in the middle of a word, you would laugh at me. <laughs> I mean, let's be fair. When I read, it sounds like I'm having a stroke most of the time. So. Only if you have to do any accent. Only work. if I have to do French, yes. C A R. C A R Y A T Y A T I D I D Caryatid. Yep. Caryatid. 
A stone carving of a draped female figure used in pill used as a pillar to support a Greek or Greek style building. Oh. So it's like one So of it's those. a stone naked lady. Stone naked lady. Cool. Yeah. As they stepped out into the darkness, a sheet of rain was driven in upon their faces, and the hall lamp, which dangled from the arm of a marble caryatid, went out with a fluff. Pim, the butler, pushed the heavy door to, straining hard with his shoulder against the wind, while the two men groped their way toward the yellow glare which showed where the cab was waiting. An instant later, they were rattling upon their journey. "'Is it far?' asked Douglas Stone. "'Oh, no. We have a very little quiet place off the Euston Road.' The surgeon pressed the spring of his repeater and listened to the little tings which told him the hour. It was a quarter past nine. He calculated the distances and the short time which it would take him to perform so trivial an operation. He ought to reach Lady Sanox by ten o'clock. Through the fogged windows, he saw the blurred gas lamps dancing past, with occasionally the broader glare of a shop front. The rain was pelting and rattling upon the leathern top of the carriage, and the wheels swashed as they rolled through puddle and mud. Opposite to him, the white headgear of his companion gleamed faintly through the obscurity. The surgeon felt in his pockets and arranged his needles, his ligatures, and his safety pins that no time might be wasted when they arrived. He chafed with impatience and drummed his foot upon the floor. He's chafing? Like his balls? <laughs> yes. His balls started itching with impatience. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it. He's like, oh, I'll just go do this, like, you know, life-saving surgery, and then I will uh, go get go get my, my, my rocks off. <laughs> Can we hurry Can up? We my on? balls are chafing. Like, I'm so, I'm so excited to see my lady. But the cab slowed down at last and pulled up. In an instant, Douglas Stone was out, and the Smyrna merchant's toe was at his very heel. You can wait, he said to the driver. It was a mean-looking house in a narrow and sordid street. The surgeon, who knew his London well, cast a swift glance into the shadows, but there was nothing distinctive, no shop, no movement, nothing but a double line of dull, flat-faced houses, a double stretch of wet flagstones which gleamed in the lamplight, and a double rush of water in the gutters which swirled and gurgled toward the sewer gratings. The door which faced them was blotched and discolored, and a faint light in the fan pane above it served to show the dust and the grime which covered it. Above, in one of the bedroom windows, there was a dull yellow glimmer. The merchant knocked loudly, and as he turned his dark face towards the light, Douglas Stone could see that it was contracted with anxiety. The bolt was drawn, and an elderly woman with a taper stood in the doorway, shielding the thin flame with her gnarled hand. "'Is all well?' gasped the merchant. "'She is as you left her, sir.' "'She has not spoken. No, she is in a deep sleep.' 
The merchant closed the door, and Douglas Stone walked down the narrow passage, glancing about him in some surprise as he did so. There was no oilcloth, no mat, no hat rack. Deep gray dust and heavy festoons of cobwebs met his eyes everywhere. Following the old woman up the winding stairs, his firm footfall echoed harshly through the silent house. Okay, one, this is creepy. Two, where'd this guy get all that money? <laughs> Following the old woman up the winding stair, his firm footfall echoed harshly through the silent house. There was no carpet. The bedroom was on the second landing. Douglas Stone followed the old nurse into it with the merchant at his heels. Here, at least, there was furniture and to spare. The floor was littered and the corners piled with Turkish cabinets, inlaid tables, coats of chainmail, strange pipes, and grotesque weapons. A single small lamp stood upon the bracket on the wall. Douglas Stone took it down and, picking his way among the lumber, walked over to the couch in the corner on which lay a woman dressed in Turkish fashion with a yashmak and veil. The lower part of the face was exposed, and the surgeon oh, saw God. a jagged cut which zigzagged along the border of the under lip. You will forgive the yashmak, the Turk said. You know our views about women in the East. But the surgeon was not thinking about the yashmak. This was no longer a woman to him. It was a case. He stooped and examined the wound carefully. There are no signs of irritation, said he. We might delay the operation until local symptoms develop. The husband wrung his hands in incontrollable agitation. Oh, sir, sir, he cried, do not trifle. You do not know. It is deadly, I know, and I give you my assurance that an operation is absolutely necessary. Only the knife can save her. And yet I am inclined to wait, said Douglas Stone. That is enough, the Turk cried angrily. Every minute is of importance. I cannot stand here and see my wife allowed to sink. It only remains for me to give you my thanks for having come and to call in some other surgeon before it is too late. Douglas Stone hesitated. To refund that hundred pounds was no pleasant matter. But of course, if he left the case, he must return the money. And if the Turk were right and the woman died, his position before a coroner might be an embarrassing one. You have had personal experience of this poison, he asked. I have, and you assure me that an operation is needful. I swear it by all that I hold sacred. The disfigurement will be frightful. I can understand that the mouth will not be a pretty one to kiss. Oh, this is so fucked up. Douglas Stone turned fiercely upon the man. The speech was a brutal one, but the Turk has his own fashion of talk and of thought, and there was no time for wrangling. Douglas Stone drew a bistery from his case, opened it, and felt the keen, straight edge with his forefinger. Then he held the lamp closer to the bed. 
Two dark eyes were gazing up at him through the slit in the ash mech. They were all iris. The pupil was hardly to be seen. You have given her a very heavy dose of opium. Yes, she has had a good dose. Mm, oh, God. He glanced again at the dark eyes, which looked straight at his own. They were dull and lusterless, but even as he gazed, a little shifting sparkle came into them, and the lips quivered. No, 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 no. She is not absolutely unconscious, said he. Would it not be well to use the knife while it would be painless? The same thought had crossed the surgeon's mind. He grasped the wounded lip with his forceps, and with two swift cuts, he took out a broad V-shaped piece. The woman sprang up on the couch with a dreadful gurgling scream. Her covering was torn from her face. It was a face that he knew. In spite of that protruding upper lip and that slobber of blood, it was a face that he knew. She kept on putting her hand to the gap and screaming. Douglas Stone sat down on the foot of the couch with his knife and his forceps. The room was whirling round, and he had felt something go like a ripping seam behind his ear. A bystander would have said that his face was the more ghastly of the two. As in a dream, or as if he had been looking at something at the play, he was conscious that the Turk's hair and beard lay upon the table, and that Lord Sanix was leaning against the wall with his hand to his side, laughing silently. Okay, first of all, everyone in this story is an asshole. (laughs) But Lord Sanex just took it to a whole new level of, I mean, he just, oh my fucking God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. 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 Oh, I'm very upset. (laughs) The screams had died away now and the dreadful head had dropped back again upon the pillow. But Douglas Stone still sat motionless, and Lord Sanix still chuckled quietly to himself. It was really very necessary for Marion, this operation, said he. Not physically, but morally, oh, you know. fuck this guy. Morally. Fuck him hard. He just gave her a scarlet letter. Yeah, like, but like, No, but worse. I'm like, literally like, like, <laughs> Yeah. An, like a V was cut into her fucking mouth. Yeah. Like, Jesus, maybe fucking like, you know, file for a divorce or, you know, um, have a discussion with her instead of having her, her one of her many lovers, first of all, uh, mutilate her in, oh my God, I can't. And he just sat there and watched. That just shows how much he really actually cares about her. So this guy's just a horrible person. Yeah, he's, he's, Nuts. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm not having this guy. Like, the other two are not innocent, but neither of them deserve what just happened no. to them. <laughs> Fuck, man. Okay, continue. Douglas Stone stooped forwards and began to play with the fringe of the coverlet. His knife tinkled down upon the ground, but he still held the forceps and something more. I would stab that motherfucker in the fucking face. 
I had long intended to make a little example, said Lord Sanix suavely. Your note of Wednesday miscarried, and I have it here in my pocketbook. I took some pains in carrying out my idea. The wound, by the way, was from nothing more dangerous than my signet ring. He punched her? Well, or knocked her out and dug it into her face or... Who knows? What a fucking shit show. He glanced keenly at his silent companion and cocked the small revolver which he held in his coat pocket, but Douglas Stone was still picking at the coverlet. You see, you have kept your appointment after all, said Lord Sanix. And at that, Douglas Stone began to laugh. He laughed long and loudly. But Lord Sanix did not laugh now. Something like fear sharpened and hardened his features. He walked from the room, and he walked on tiptoe. The old woman was waiting outside. Attend your mistress when she wakes, said Lord Sanix. Then he went down to the street. The cab was at the door, and the driver raised his hand to his hat. John! said Lord Sanix. You will take the doctor home first. He will want leading downstairs, I think. Tell his butler that he has been taken ill at a case. Very good, sir. Then you can take Lady Sanix home. And how about yourself, sir? Oh. My address for the next few months will be Hotel di Roma, Venice. Just see that the letters are sent on, and... Tell Stevens to exhibit all the purple chrysanthemums next Monday, then to wire me the result. The end. Oh, fuck no! Oh my god! What the fuck? Okay. Okay. Fuck that guy. I hope there's a part two, or I'm gonna write a part two, and I want that guy to fucking go down. I was hoping that Mr. Stone, or the doctor, would, like, fucking with his knife, just like, or he was gonna blow his own brains out, because, like, he cocked his pistol in his his pocket, right? Yeah, I think he was getting ready to, um, to to basically shoot Stone and make it look like a suicide, and then he went, oh... Nope, this is better. Oh my god, I hate, I hate, I hate so many things. Like, what an okay. First of all, great story. Like, great, well written story. Great Halloween story. Great Halloween story. Like, um, oh my god, gross. Not, not a haunted story, no. but a story Haunting. of like, like humans are fucked up enough on their own. Oh my god, like, like, uh, ah. Uh, well, well, like, and I, 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 I oh God, I just can't. <laughs> I just can't. I mean, that like, it, that, that makes me like think of like, it makes me think of the, like the, that, what the astronaut lady who like drove across the country with like a diaper on to like, like kill her lover's like lover or something. Or I vaguely lo- remember that. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, yeah. But like, it's like, like that, that, that does not. Okay. I get it. I get it. That sucks. But it also sounds like this lady, this was not her only lover. 
And um, it sounds like he had not been paying her much attention anyway. Not that that is an excuse. But also, it sounds like he's a fucking psycho. Absolutely. Not not that this justifies what he did, obviously. However, it sounds like the reason he chose this relationship is because he found a letter. Because he was so... Because this is the one where they weren't even bothering to be discreet. Well, yeah, and especially Stone was not bothering to be discreet yeah. to the point where his friends are like, dude, like, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh my God. I just like... This actually, um, what although a the language movie. the language wasn't quite right, this had a lot of the feel of a Poe short story. Yes, it's very Poe. It's very like tw- humanity twisted. Like I can, I can imagine twisted. this being the same guy who boards, uh, who bricks his buddy up in the wall. Yeah, or like the black cat thing, the like that cat yeah. story, which was our Halloween episode, like our first year. Yeah. Oh my God, that's just so gross. Ah, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle strikes again. Yeah. I knew something was wrong when I like had the realization when you were discussing the house. And we're gonna we so Ken and I kind of figured this out before and we we chopped we took some stuff out because we were like, I think we figured this out. Yeah, so I might I Ken might reattach the the part where we discuss what's happening. It can be like an after, after episode. The, after the credits. Yeah. Uh, after the credits, after the the theme song. Yeah. Um so that you can hear us discuss that. But we we kinda I my first inkling was when you were he was when he was describing the house that they were walking into. I was like, where did this guy get all this money? And Ken looked at me and goes, "Do you want me to tell you what I think is going on?" I'm like, "Yeah, let's let's talk about this." Yeah. Cuz I'm like, "I think she's upstairs." Yeah, and he goes, mm-hmm. "Oh, yes." And yeah. I think but then he was like ahead of me and he goes, "I think that's the husband." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man, man, man. Oh, fuck. Like so, hey, campers, well, what'd you think Halloween, of that one? motherfuckers. Did you enjoy that story, twisted as it was? We got clowns and uh, and wrongly accused and uh, fucking guilty as hell. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what an episode uh, that was. Shoot us a message. Let us know what you thought about that one. Um, and uh, My jaw is, like, on the ground right now. I'm <laughs> just like, what? Oh, gross. A visceral choice of words given what happened in this story. My jaw is on the ground right now. Hey, my lip is not on the ground. Just my entire jaw has dropped. Um, so yeah, shoot us an email. Let us know what you thought about that. Um, message us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or on any of the social media. We've got Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and um, all those good things. Just look for Campfire Classics Podcast. We're, we're pretty easy to find. Uh, when you shoot us that mes- message, please include this week's secret passcode, which is chafing balls. Okay, yeah, I think um, I have a very demented version of Carrie Underwood's Before He Cheats in my brain right now. Wow. Um, All about this story, and it's wrong. All right. (laughs) Um, So that is your mission for next week, is to record a... (laughs) Please don't. ...revenge parody. No, God, please don't. I'm more freaked out by that than the clowns. Um, Yeah. Hope I'm y'all done. enjoyed that one. I'm done. You done? That was that was nasty. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. He dug his knife into the side of her lip, and then he cut inside. Carved his knife.
where'd this guy get all that money? <laughs> I think I know. I I, I can't th- answer because I'm I'm, I'm at guess- like ninety percent. I know I'm, what's happening. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it because I don't want to ruin it for the friends. But I think uh, uh, Lady Saxon's husband has something to do with this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Just say that would be one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. I think he's gonna get upstairs anyway. Anyway, I think we're about to meet um, the the title character. <laughs> it's not gonna be a Turkish woman. Following the old woman up the. Yeah. He's and- gonna mutilate his own mistress and. And she didn't even need it because this whole poison thing is bullshit. And yeah. <laughs> and the the guy is her lord husband who looks older than he actually yeah. is and was a really good actor yeah. when he was younger. When he was an actor. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't even put that together yet. Oh, shit. And it's why she is going to take the veil and retire from public because life. Because she has a fucking gash cut out of her face yeah. oh my god but how, i want to know why how why he becomes like lobotomized let's find out because he realizes what he just did and he hurts himself no i think he just i think it's like i think he's just a mess boom, goes he's into in shock. shock okay 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 um I probably just cut all of that out yeah, so that we cut. don't spoil yeah, it for please, the, yeah. yeah. I just, I, I'm intrigued. Yep. <laughs> I had not put together that part though. Yeah. I thought um, he was somebody hired or like an old actor friend or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and yes, Always I. Always the fucking actors, man. <laughs> Conan Doyle in Agatha Christie's Always the damn actors. Yep. <laughs> um, again, I'm cutting all of this out and yes. probably putting it at the end of the yes. episode. Yes, yes, yes. 